came in after the announcement was made about the cards. We would appreciate it if you haven't filled out a card. Please do that. Members on one side, of course, the appropriate side, and visitors on the other. We would like to have a record of your attendance with us, and we do welcome our visitors, especially you are our honored guest. We're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, Ron Payne and I were talking, and he was saying that Leon and Barbara had not been here Wednesday night, not back tonight, and I did learn uh, just now that Leon is very, very sick with COPD problems, uh, is our understanding. And so uh, we certainly want to add Leon and, of course, Barbara to our prayer list. Of course, Barbara has had some ongoing health issues, but Leon right now is uh, struggling mightily with that problem. So let's um, please uh, remember Leon and Barbara Northcutt uh, in your prayers. On Friday afternoon, I was driving down here to the building, and on Dayton Boulevard, I saw a man coming the opposite direction, walking on the side of, of the street. And he was carrying a cross, a very large cross, a cross large enough upon which I would suppose one could crucify a man. And as I left the building to go back, because I wasn't here very long on that occasion, I didn't see him, don't know where he went. But I could not help but be struck by the idea, tragically, that so many have about the cross and about carrying a cross as this man was carrying. I understand there's a man in the Philippines who every year at this time submits to being crucified. Not to the point of dying, but actually to having nails driven into his body and to be hanged upon a cross, to be hung upon a cross. It is sad indeed to see the kind of misunderstanding and misapprehension that so many have about the cross, and yet one could not certainly question the sincerity of an individual who submits to that, nor could one question the sincerity of an individual who walks down Dayton Boulevard on a fairly warm afternoon carrying a very large cross. But is that what Jesus meant when he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. No, that's not what Jesus meant. He meant what he said. He meant if anyone desires to come after me, and that's really the first qualification, isn't it, for becoming a follower of Christ. The first qualification for becoming a follower of Christ is to desire to become a follower of Christ. And God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, they have done all that is needed, certainly and beyond, to produce within the hearts of honest, sincere seekers of truth deep desire. To follow Jesus. We love him, John wrote, because he first loved us. Love is that supreme motivation. Love that is depicted so beautifully and so fully in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the words of Jesus. In everything that Jesus did, we have more than ample motivation 
to love him who so deeply and fully loved us. And thus, there should be created in the right thinking mind a deep desire to follow Jesus. But desire is only the first prerequisite, if you will. We must act upon that desire, Jesus says, by doing certain things. And let me suggest to you what those four things are and that they are four deaths. I want us to think this morning about the four deaths of a Christian. In order to follow Jesus, in order to be a disciple of Christ, you need to die four deaths. You need to die four times, if you will, in order to finally die and be pleasing to God and Christ and to have eternal life in heaven. And in the text that we have begun to read at verse 23, if we read on through verse 26, we have depicted what I believe are those four deaths that are absolutely essential to our becoming disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. Now we read verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But then Jesus continues, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? And then he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. In those verses we have just read, I believe we see four deaths that are absolutely essential for us to die in order to die ultimately, physically, in covenant relationship with God and Christ. And surely every one of us here this morning wants to die ultimately in covenant relationship with God and Christ. We want to go to heaven. But if we are to have that hope, that anticipation, that confidence, then we're going to have to die, first of all, verse 23, to self. That's what verse 23 tells us. You cannot become a disciple of Christ without denying self. That's dying to self. To deny is to die. To deny self. If anyone desires to come after me, here is the first death he must be willing to undergo. A death to self. And I believe we live in a time, perhaps, when that may be more difficult for someone to comply with than perhaps at any time in my lifetime, perhaps. Because this is a self-centered society to a great extent and a growing greater extent every day that we live. And one perhaps seemingly insignificant manifestation of that is the selfies that everybody takes of self. Now I say that may be a seemingly insignificant indication of it, but there are a lot of selfies being taken, aren't there? And I have mentioned before that the late Whitney Houston once had a song which said, the greatest love is me. The greatest love is me. 
And we live in a society that has a difficult time, it seems, perhaps more than at any other time in recent time, denying self. A difficult time even diminishing self, let alone denying self. And of course, the humanist in the world, the atheist, all of, all of those individuals would tell us you do not need to deny self. In fact, what you need to do is exalt self because the humanist philosophy is man is man's God. He is the only need man has is man. And there's nothing higher and nothing more important. But Jesus said just the opposite. He said you do not only need to diminish self. No, that will not be sufficient. You've got to deny self. That is, deny selfish interest. Well, John, uh, Paul talked about it in Galatians 2, verse 20, when he said what? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Listen to that again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That's denial of self. That is death. That is death to self being, being portrayed very clearly in that passage in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, there's the key. There's the key to that creation of the desire to deny or die to self. I live for him who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. And because I recognize how much he loved me and how much he gave, then I am willing to deny, to die to self and to give. The same writer over in the Colossian letter at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 wrote this. Therefore, put to death, as the New King James renders it. King James says mortify, but the idea is put to death. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So as we've said before, he did not admonish us to become sick to the world, he said, die to it. He did not say, put fornication and uncleanness and passion and evil desire and covetousness on a back burner and put Christ on a front burner. He said, put to death these things. Kill them. Deny them. Turn away from them. Turn away from them. And so the first death that an individual must die in order to be faithful to God and die faithfully, physically one day, unless the Lord comes first. The first death is death to self. But in verse 24, we see a second death. In verse 24, we see death to security. Death to security. I've got to die to security. Listen to the words again. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's death to security. That is, I'd be willing, I've got to be willing to die to the security of living on in this life. I've got to be willing to give my life and to give up the security 
that I may otherwise have if I'll deny Christ, I've got to be willing to confess Him, to live for Him, and even in the face, even in the face of death, when an option may be given to me, either you deny Christ or you die right here and now, then I've got to die. I've got to die. I've got to give up the, the temporary security of this life if I'm going to have the security eternally of eternal life. Now here's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear him who is able to kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? God, through Jesus Christ, who will judge the world in righteousness one day, when days are no more on this earth. Therefore, if I, if I don't die to the security of the here and now, I'll never know the security of the hereafter. And there have been those who have been called upon to do that very thing. And there are those in countries where persecution is rampant, where New Testament Christians, not simply those who tragically are, are worshiping and laboring according to the traditions and teachings of men and, and who believe that they're following Christ, but tragically their lives are not in harmony with the will of God, though they are sincere, sincere enough even at times to die. But there are those who are truly New Testament Christians, the only kind of Christian there is, those who have brought their lives into harmony with the New Testament, who have died, who have died in fairly large numbers. Nigeria is a country in which that has occurred, where there are members of the Lord's church who have been slaughtered simply because they are members of the Lord's church by those who are determined to erase the cause of Christ from the face of the earth. And so I've got to be willing, myself, to die that death to security. And the only way that I can have any kind of confidence that I would be able to do that if indeed I were faced with that, with that option, either deny or die physically, the only way I can do that is by being strong enough in this to have that confidence that I could. But Jesus said that's the kind of attitude his followers must have. You've got to die to self, but you've got to die to security. And obviously the third death in verse 25 is that we've got to die to sin. We've got to die to sin. Listen to it again. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Destroyed by what? Lost by what? Or because of what? Sin. That's the only thing that can cost you your soul is sin. So when Jesus says, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, you will lose it because of sin. Therefore, we have to die to sin. Well, someone says, you can't die to sin because even at best, you are going to sin from time to time. And I fully agree with that. 
while at the same time I confidently affirm that you can die to sin. That is, you can die to the continual practice of sin. And you must die to the continual practice of sin. In other words, once we have undergone that death to the continual practice of sin, even with our best efforts, we will fall short at times. As Christians, we know that. But we also know that John, in 1 John, wrote that if we walk in the light, as Christians in other words, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, keeps on cleansing us from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the key. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise there is laid out to the child of God who's walking in the light of God's word. You will sin. You will fall short. But you confess those sins regularly and fervently to the throne of God through Jesus Christ, your mediator and high priest. And his blood that was shed on Calvary keeps on cleansing as you keep on walking and as you keep on confessing. But you don't keep on sinning in terms of the habitual practice of sin. You make your best effort not to commit a single one. And that's what John wrote later in 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. My goal is for you that you not commit a single sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And on this matter of continually sinning, dying to that idea of sin, 1 John 3, 9 sums it up beautifully. John there writes, whoever has been born of God, that's the Christian, does not sin. And the word there is in the present indicative, which means he does not keep on sinning. Does he sin inevitably at times? Because despite his best efforts, he's human? Yes. What does he do about it? Confesses. What does he do? Keeps on walking in the light of God's word. But you don't keep on sinning. You can't do that, he says, for his seed, the word of God, is the seed of, the, uh, of God. That word is in him, and he cannot sin. Again, the, the tense is present. The tense is continuous, which means he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's why Jesus in Luke 9.25 says you've got to die to sin. You've got to die to the continual practice of sin. Turn your back upon that sinful lifestyle and turn to God through Jesus Christ and come to him. And as you do, you have that full assurance of the absolute, complete forgiveness of every sin as you express your belief in Jesus the Christ, as you repent of your sins, turn your back upon them, as you confess sweetly the name of Christ, as you are buried in baptism for the remission of sins where His blood awaits to cleanse you from every sin, you rise with a different attitude and you rise in a different state. You rise in covenant relationship with God and Christ and you rise as one who cannot keep on sinning as you once did because everything has changed. And yes, you'll occasionally fall short, but John tells us as we keep on walking and as we keep on confessing, he keeps on forgiving. Not that we deliberately say, well, I know I can be forgiven, so I'm going to keep on sinning. The blood will cleanse me. No, it won't cleanse that kind of sin. It won't cleanse that kind of continuation of sin. We've got to die to that kind of sin. We've got to die to that practice. 
And so the first death is death to self. The second death is death to security. The third death is death to sin. But there's a fourth and final death that everyone who would be pleasing to God in Christ must die. And that is a death to shame. You've got to die to shame. That is, you've got to die to being ashamed of Jesus Christ and ashamed of God. And you've got to die to be ashamed, to being ashamed of the Lord's church for which he died and for which he shed his precious blood. You cannot be ashamed of the Lord and his church and be pleasing to him. Listen to verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me. Well, someone says, well, I'm not ashamed of Christ. I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you right away that I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't really stop there. He, he got very specific as he continued when he said, whoever is ashamed of me, not just, not just ashamed of saying my name, not just ashamed of professing to be a believer, but whoever is ashamed of me and my words. You see, Jesus tied himself to his words. And he did so not only in this passage, he did so in passage after passage. And in one particularly poignant passage in John twelve forty eight, a passage that we have cited quite often, Jesus very clearly said what? He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him, the words that I have spoken. The same will judge him in the last day. John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my what? My words. What's the difference in that and in this passage in Luke 9, 26? Nothing. In other words, Jesus is inseparably tying any kind of belief or profession of belief in him to the keeping of his word. In other words, you cannot claim to be a follower of Christ while being ashamed of his word. And to be ashamed of his word is equivalent to not following it and to not defending it, even unto death. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed. That's very reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me, in other words, whoever is ashamed of me, whoever denies me, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so I've got to die to shame. And I realize that we live in a time where peer pressure upon God's people is perhaps at a level that we've never seen in our lives. Not just the kind of persecution that takes the form of physical death or injury as 
is occurring. But there's also a type of persecution, a type of peer pressure that says, you need to cave to the idea of one church in the New Testament. You need to become much more ecumenical in your thinking if you're going to get along in a live and let live world. If you're going to get, live in a world where pluralism has gone to seed, then you're going to have to give up this exclusivism. This exclusivism is going to have to be compromised. And there are those who are putting tremendous pressure on members of the Lord's body to do just that. And yet, the Bible still says what it's always said. Jesus and his words are still the same. Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he gave him, Ephesians 1.22, Christ to be head over all things to his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, the church which is his body. Ephesians 2.14-16 through 16 still says that he reconciled both Jew and Gentile, all men, unto God in one body through the cross. And there are those who want to separate the cross from the church. And Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says that's an absolute impossibility because you can't come to the cross without coming into the church and being added thereto by the Lord himself. He reconciled all men to God in one body. What body was it? Ephesians 1, 23, the body of the church. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. Just as there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who's above all and in you all. What is that body? Is it a denomination among denominations? No, and yet the pressure is intense for members of the Lord's body to capitulate to that kind of thinking and to become far more inclusive than the church was ever designed to be. Oh, the church is inclusive in that it is designed to include everyone who will bring his or her life into harmony with what the New Testament teaches. In other words, it desires to include all men, but it cannot include those who are not following the will of God and Christ. And I cannot teach, preach, or live anything but what I know to be the clear teaching of the New Testament on this or any other subject. Nor can you, if you expect or anticipate to die faithfully to God, you've got to die to shame. You've got to die to being ashamed of what the Lord shed his blood to purchase. And if we'll die the death to self and to security and to sin and to shame, then, then when we die, the fifth death, if you will, the death that's coming to every single one of us unless the Lord comes first. If you'll die these other deaths, then your death, physical death, will glorify God. In John chapter 21, after the resurrection of Jesus, he was with the apostles there and you remember the exchange between the Lord and Peter where he asked Peter to affirm his love for him three times 
As Peter had earlier denied the Lord three times, he affirmed his love for the Lord on this occasion three times. And then Jesus said to him in verse 18, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you did not or do not wish. What was he saying? We don't have to guess. The next verse tells us. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Think about it. Peter, the Lord said, you will die for me. You will die a martyr's death. Be assured of that. Now, follow me. Follow me. And he did. And he did. And our death doesn't have to be a martyr's death in order to glorify God. But it has to be a death that's followed by four others. The death to self, the death to security, the death to sin, and the death to shame. And then, if we're privileged to die peacefully on our pillows during the night and painlessly, that death will still glorify God. What about yours? Can you truly say that your death, if it were to come this very day, would glorify God? Not if you haven't died these other deaths. And if you haven't, we plead with you to do it. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Repent of your sins. Turn your back upon them. Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Confess him. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. Deny me, he said, and I'll deny you. And then following belief, repentance, and confession, do what Jesus so clearly said when he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Because baptism is the only place where the blood of Christ awaits to cleanse you. It's not the water that cleanses, but it's in the water that the blood applied from heaven cleanses you because that's the way the Lord designed it. And I have no right to change it. And I cannot change it. Though it has been changed time and time again, and is being changed even this day by myriads of people, religious people everywhere. I still cannot change what the Lord said about the final culminating act of faith that places one into covenant relationship with God in Christ, and that is baptism. Because his blood has to be reached, and that's where God has placed the blood. And you may have known that at one time and have come to that blood and been baptized for the remission of your sins and added to the Lord's church and have lived faithfully up until a point in time, but you know this very moment that you have not continued to die the four deaths that we've talked about, and therefore you're not ready to die that final death. You can be again. You can be if you'll come home in repentance, confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly as we pray with you and for you to a God who still loves you supremely and waits with open arms, as it were, to welcome you home. And for those who need no repentance and who truly are dying the four deaths we've talked about, may God continue to bless you and strengthen you 
to continue to live as you are so that you can have that hope, that anticipation that when the final death comes, you'll see him as he is and be with him for all eternity. But if you need to respond this morning, please come now as we stand to sing to encourage you.